0: Um, and to be back on Capitol Hill where I worked along with my wife Dawn for um, a decade. She was a scheduler and office manager for a member of the House um, and I worked in the Senate. And Dawn thought this was appropriate and symbolic. She worked hard and was sensitive to the needs of others. I thought very highly of myself and tended to filibuster. Um, the uh, conference committees were not always pretty. Um, I'm. Uh, resolved today not to make any jokes about the shutdown or the Tea Party. I imagine that feelings are still a little raw. Um, And I actually worked with Ted Cruz, this is true, down in Austin in the Bush campaign in 1999. Um, We got along quite well until the incident where Ted barricaded himself into the break room because he thought we were spending too much money on donuts. This is uh, a time when um, trust in government is fairly low while the responsible performance of government has seldom been more important. That puts all of you in a difficult strategic place. Even when politics is at its most frustrating and difficult it's about the conditions that lead to human flourishing. It's both noble and unavoidable and for people of faith It helps reveal our view of God and our of our fellow citizens, particularly when they're in need. Today, I'm not going to talk about current events, though I'm happy to address the news in the question-and-answer session. I want to briefly relate the personal story of how I came to wrestle with topics of suffering, politics, and justice. But let me start just by telling you a little bit about myself. Speechwriters are supposed to be anonymous, and at this task, I've succeeded beyond my wildest dreams. I uh, I didn't take the typical Washington path. I was a Bible and theology major at Wheaton College in Illinois. As most of you know, it's a pretty religiously conservative place. Uh, The joke on campus when I went there was that the administration had banned premarital sex because it might lead to dancing. (laughs) Um, Out of uh, college, I went to work uh, at Prison Fellowship Ministries, some of you may know, uh, for Chuck Colson, who I think will be remembered as one of the great social reformers of the 20th century. How we treat prisoners, some of the most despised people in our society, is a test of our commitment to human dignity. And the former prisoners I met working at Prison Fellowship will always be my greatest examples of the transforming power of Christ. But my driving interest was political. I spent some time as a speechwriter and policy advisor to Senator Dan Coates, a man of tremendous kindness, consideration, and integrity. Um, I spent some time in political journalism. And then I got a call from then-Governor George W. Bush of Texas, who wanted to meet me at the JW Marriott Hotel downtown. Um, The First thing he said to me was, this isn't an interview. I've read your stuff. I want you to write my announcement speech, my convention speech and my inaugural address. At that point, he was not even a declared candidate. um, But he was uh, persuasive and packed up my family and went. From the start, we were a little bit of an odd couple. He's outgoing, social, athletic, likable, and I'm actually none of those things. Uh, uh, He has a uh, penchant for locker room humor that makes me uncomfortable. I I remember after one policy session at the governor's mansion in Austin, um, everyone had gone but me, and the governor had some time before his next appointment. He asked me, do you want to hang out a little while? With a rudeness that now seems crazed, I replied, not really. (laughs) Which is not the way to treat a future president. But I came to respect uh, Bush as a politician and as a person, he is above all a man without a mask. Interest, frustration, <clears throat> boredom, sadness come unfiltered. He can occasionally be sharp-tongued. Every year on the day of the State of the Union address, I remember, the president sits down with all the network anchors for a time to question and answer. At one of these sessions, the late Peter Jennings asked him, what does it feel like to go before the nation and read someone else's words? The president immediately replied, you do it every night. (laughs) My uh, life changed direction on September 11th, uh, 2001, like the lives of many other people. I was working at home. The president was in Florida when my deputy, who was watching events in New York, said I should come in immediately. I was headed into work on that clear morning down... I-395, from my home in Alexandria, when I saw a plane flying low over the highway, headed towards the Pentagon, so low that I could see the windows. Days later, I sat in the National Cathedral for the memorial service. I remember the solemn moment when all of official Washington stood and sang the Battle Hymn of the Republic, and I saw how, in a few historical moments, the words, the rhetoric can really matter to the country. The president said, this world he created is of moral design. Grief, tragedy, and hatred are only for a time. Goodness, remembrance, and love have no end. And the Lord of life holds all who die and all who mourn. The pace of those White House years was, uh, including 9-11 and war and natural disaster, was at times exhausting. It has a cost to your health. In December of 2004, while working on the President's second inaugural address, I had a mild heart attack. The President's doctor had me checked into the hospital under an assumed name to avoid all the press calls. Having insulted incapacity, there wasn't a single call. <laughs> and it has a cost to your family. During the heat of the presidential election of 2004, my little boy, Nicholas, then six years old, announced to me in the car that he wanted John Kerry for president. When I asked him why, he said, so you can be home on weekends. My nine-year-old at the time, who was a little more practical, then said, but how would we eat? (laughs) That's true. And I told him, I think I could get a job. I might go to a think tank. And he said, "What? of course, what's a think tank? So I told him, well, it's people who read and speak and have meetings and things. And Bucky, and this is true, said, you mean they don't do anything? (laughs) Um, After the 2004 election, my job at the White House changed significantly. I became a policy advisor focused on global health and development and genocide, areas where my interests had been leading me for many years. And I saw something rather hopeful. In one of the most bitter times of partisanship in modern history, I also found a number of issues where members of both parties and people of every ideology have come together. As part of my job at the White House, I worked with conservative and liberal groups to fight global AIDS and to confront malaria and to oppose global sex trafficking and to confront the crisis in Darfur. And I've seen some odd alliances grow. I've gotten to know Bono of U2 a little bit. Um, Several years ago he invited me to the first rock concert I had ever attended. um, And it was loud. Um, uh, Soon afterwards, my wife and I had dinner with Bono, who is a very idealistic and principled band. After the dinner, my wife told me, you may be idealistic and principled, but it would also be nice if you were rich and cool. Now I'm a columnist for the Washington Post. I often fill in for my friend David Brooks on the news hour when he's out of town. If David is off, there is actually a PBS union rule that requires the presence of a nerdy moderate on the program. <laughs> um, I'm also a fellow at the One Campaign, founded by Bono. It's an organization with a single purpose, to provide a political voice for the sick and suffering of the world. Any of you who are interested in the work of One, please contact me. I'd, I'd love to be in touch. When I remember my college years, I think of my roommates. Many of you are not far from that. Scott Baker, who now runs The Blaze, which is a big conservative website, and Jordan, who was really the king of campus. He was class president, he knew the name of everyone on campus, everyone we met. I knew the name of just about no one, but Jordan and I got along. After we graduated in 1986, Jordan stayed in Chicago. I went to Washington DC, we talked by phone once or twice a week. He started law school in Tennessee. I talk, we talked less and less until the calls, my calls went unreturned. I thought he was busy, had a new life and new friends. Years went by, then I learned from Scott that Jordan had AIDS. We went to see him in the hospital in Florida, shockingly thin, beset by infections. It was only a few years before the development of miracle drugs that could have saved him. But he died in 1994 at the age of 30 years old. America at the time was in the midst of a national debate. A leading Christian pastor said AIDS is God's judgment on a society that does not live by his rules. A majority of evangelicals shared that belief in polls. People with AIDS often died exposed, blamed, and stigmatized. I remember thinking at the time, why God's judgment for this and not for pride or spiritual arrogance or cruelty? Why not? Why do some human failures gain a special category of shame while others are conveniently minimized? And a fact, a principle became clear to me. There is nothing that more vividly and directly reveals our image of God, our conception of God, than our reaction human suffering. So today I want to outline a few Christian responses to suffering and how they determine our witness to the world. The first reaction is judgment. Following the attacks of September 11, 2001, the immediate response of some prominent Christian pastors was remarkable. Two prominent leaders blamed abortionists, feminists, gays, and lesbians in the ACLU for America's deserved punishment on 9-11. Following the Haitian earthquake, one leader blamed some historical Haitian pact with the devil for the deaths of tens of thousands of women and children. These examples sound absurd, but the general attitude is more common among Christians than we imagine or admit. Without denying that God is ultimately in charge of history, it's necessary to assert that such interpretations of tragic events are offensive and theologically unsound. It's not immediately evident why religious leaders should have a special prophetic insight into God's purpose in history, or why the failures that especially offend them should count more than other sins, such as pride, social injustice, and indifference to the poor, or why the family of a 9-11 victim should blame the ACLU rather than Al-Qaeda. A simplistic conception of divine providence, the punishment of individuals for the sake of corporate offenses, makes a mockery of individual moral agency, and opens Christian leaders to charges of monstrous indifference to tragedy. Every nation, like every life, is a mixture of ruin and nobility. Theologian Richard Mao, who I have a lot of respect for, puts it this way, the antithesis between godliness and ungodliness is very real, but it is discernible not only in the larger patterns of culture but also in the inner battlegrounds of our own souls. In Christian belief, God's ultimate goal is to bring men and women into communion with himself. His dealings with the world serve that purpose, and God's purpose can be advanced through redemptive suffering, which is not a punishment, but a mystery and a method of grace. The workings of God in the midst of tragedy cannot be reduced to a moral mathematics in which sin yields disaster. Believers share the blessings and tragedies and diseases of their neighbors, and should work and pray for the good of others, not declare the suffering of their neighbors to be something deserved. Now, a second more hopeful and popular response to suffering, fortunately, is compassion. While a few blamed Haiti for their own earthquake, many more rushed to help the victims. This represents not only a different view of those who suffer, but a different view of God, the image that we see of Jesus. The relief of suffering was essentially related to the announcement of his kingdom. And the healing of disease played an important symbolic role. It previewed the greater healing of all creation, the end of blindness, the end of mental anguish, the end of affliction such as leprosy that marked men and women as outcasts. Christ's healing ministry was a protest against the random cruelties of the world and the promise of a better world to come. Some historians credit, in part, the rapid expansion of Christianity in the Roman Empire to the willingness of Christians to serve their neighbors in times of plague, to enter the houses of the sick when no one else would. It is the proper way to serve a God of mercy and make him known to others. And I've seen this kind of witness in many places from inner cities to, de- in, to the developing world, particularly in the response to HIV-AIDS. I've met nuns in Ethiopia who care for HIV-positive orphans, and a pastor in South Africa who promotes AIDS prevention among sex workers, and a pastor's wife in Zambia who delivers patients to the hospital by bicycle, and a nurse in Uganda who began paying the bills for AIDS drugs of patients with their own money. By worldly standards, these are buried lives in remote places, They are actually some of the most powerful representatives of God on earth. In these places, the kingdom of God is arriving day by day. But the third Christian response to suffering is justice, which is the responsibility of a community, the work of citizens, not just individuals. And here I'll give just a little more focus. Over the last few decades, Christian involvement in politics has sometimes gotten a bad name some of it deserved. The religious right led Christians back into the public square after a long absence, a good and positive thing, but it sometimes left the public square littered with anger and rhetorical excess. The movement began as a reaction against the aggressions of the modern world. It ended by squandering much of its promise because it was too reactive. Often it reacted to anger with anger. It reacted against the liberal social gospel by downplaying the very idea of justice thus narrowing the range of evangelical concern. The result was often a partial agenda, even a partisan agenda. The wrong kind of politics can not only compromise an individual believer, but undermine the message of the church itself. Any political movement, particularly a virtuous political movement, can become a consuming substitute for faith. And the line is fine between zeal and anger. In the epilogue to a severe mercy, Sheldon Vanekin writes, I was one of those caught up in the mood and action of the 1960s. Christ, I thought, would surely have me oppose what appeared an unjust war. But the movement, whatever its ideals, did a good deal of hating. And Christ gradually was pushed into the rear. Movement goals, not God, became first. I now think that making God secondary, which is in the end, is to make him nothing, is quite simply the mortal danger in social action. He continues, Some may avoid this danger, but I was not obeying the first and greatest commandment, to love God for first, nor is it clear that I was obeying the second to love my neighbor. Hating the oppressors of my neighbor isn't perhaps quite what Christ had in mind. Same story has been told again and again on left and right. Instead of providing an independent voice, instead of being a steadfast representative of another kingdom, Christians merely baptize someone else's ideological agenda. They are reduced to a tool in the power games of others. And as Father Richard Newhouse once bluntly said, a church as a tool is a church of fools. In every generation, some believers conclude that political engagement is not worth the risk and the inevitable cost. We hear those voices again today. It's argued in some Christian circles that culture is upstream from politics, that songs and scholarship, movies and technological innovation, novels and newspapers ultimately determine a nation's shape, not primarily its laws. And there's truth in this point. Politics usually involves one form of power, coercion, either through the demands of law or the demands of taxation. But there are other forms of power in a society, the power of beauty and myth, the power of ideas and academic excellence, the power of example and integrity. So perhaps, we are hearing, Christians should focus more on cultural formation than political activism. Perhaps they should be content with demonstrating the values of the city of God instead of writing statutes for the city of man. The problem is this. Culture is upstream from politics, except in those important cases where politics is upstream from culture. In April of 1963, a group of eight Birmingham clergy members made a famous argument about the limits and dangers of political activism. Writing in the Birmingham News, they criticized civil rights activism as, quote, unwise and untimely, and urged believers to show patience. Reverend Martin Luther King, Jr., then in the Birmingham City Jail, began writing a response in the margins of the newspaper. King's argument was simple and damning. Patience for political injustice comes easier for those who are not currently experiencing injustice. Perhaps it is easy, he said, for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait. But when you have seen the vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at will, when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, and even kill your black brothers and sisters, when you're harried by day and haunted by night, by the fact that you are a Negro living constantly a tiptoe stance, never quite knowing what to expect next, and are plagued with inner fears and outer resentments, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. All of the cautions about a politicized faith are true. Thinkers such as Reinhold Niebuhr were correct to urge realism about the world, humility in making grand moral claims, and suspicion about our own political motives. The people of faith, particularly young people, should internalize King's prison letter before accepting Niebuhr's corrective. A distrust of political action would have left legal segregation in place. Challenging a culture of bigotry required both the Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act, coercive measures that created a social expectation of equal treatment. And none of this would have happened without idealism, impatient, and single-minded in the pursuit of justice. At any given moment in a democracy, great issues of justice and morality are at stake. The idea that people of faith can take a sabbatical and lick their wounds is a form of irresponsibility. It is, in fact, an argument that could only be made by comfortable Christians. If one lived in a neighborhood plagued by poverty, dominated by gangs, and served by failing schools, there is no sabbatical from the failures of politics. Getting drug dealers off the corner and teaching children the basics of reading and math are at least as important as long-term cultural change and certainly more urgent. If one lived in a foreign country without medicines for AIDS or malaria or tuberculosis or dominated by a cruel dictator, the current policy priorities of the American people and its government would matter greatly. Retreating from the cause of justice, even temporarily, is only conceivable for those who have few needs for justice themselves. The alternative to doing politics badly is doing politics better, not turning against the political process itself. The focus of our political engagement will naturally vary by interest and background, but the primary shared Christian political commitment is the value and dignity of every human life. And it is challenged at home and across the world by poverty and family breakdown and racism and abortion and corruption, and slavery, and preventable disease, and wasteful conflict. We cannot praise the examples of Wilberforce and Bonhoeffer and remain blind to the challenges of our time. In a very limited way, I've seen what politics can accomplish. My best experience in government was this. I sat in the Oval Office and watched President George W. Bush make the decision to approve the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, PEPFAR the largest initiative to fight a single disease in human history, and I've seen the results. Until eight or nine years ago, at that orphanage in Ethiopia I mentioned earlier, the sisters could only hold the hands of children as they died. Not a single one survived. Some of the infants were blinded by infections. Some of them I was told to asked the sisters, why can't I, you come with me where I'm going? Why do I have to go alone? But then the AIDS drugs started arriving. Now almost no children are dying at that orphanage. I saw infants who had had their sight restored. I met children who had come back from the brink of death like Lazarus. It is the closest I have ever come to seeing the miracles of the New Testament. More than 5 million Africans are now on AIDS treatment, are now on the AIDS treatment that came too late for my friend. Americans should know about this achievement and be proud of it and Christians should be the strongest base of support for such works of healing and mercy. When it comes to politics, people of faith are left with an unavoidable tension, a necessary complexity. There is a danger of politicized faith, but politics is not a necessary evil. It is the calling and context that allows for other people to flourish. It creates the moral context for a culture Define the boundaries of a community and the duties we owe to one another. Politics is the realm of necessity. It can also be the realm of nobility. At its best, it is about the right ordering of our lives together. It cannot be unimportant because justice is never unimportant. Political rhetoric and ideals can raise the moral sights of a nation and point men and women to responsibilities beyond the narrow bounds of self and family. Creative policy can serve the common good in a local school or on the other side of the world. There's a lot of cynicism about politics today. But I stand on the side of John Buchan, who wrote, Public life is regarded as the crown of a career, and to young men it is the worthiest ambition. Politics is still the greatest and most honorable adventure. This has been my experience. And I suspect other young men and women will find it, so thank you very much. a great deal to say about the power of the spoken word. And